Hi, this is Brad Keithley, Managing Director of Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. Welcome to the weekly top three, the top three things on our mind here at Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets for the week of December 4th, 2023. The weekly top three is a regular segment on The Michael Duke Show. The show broadcasts on both Facebook Live and YouTube Live, as well as via streaming audio from the show's website, weekdays from 6 to 8 a.m. I join Michael weekly in the first hour of Tuesday's show from 6.10 to 7 a.m. for a discussion between the two of us about our three issues. We post the podcast of our discussion following the show on the Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Substack pages, also on the Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets website, as well as the projects page on national blog site, medium.com. You can find past episodes of the weekly top three also at the same locations. Keep in mind that in addition to these podcasts, during the week, you also can follow and participate in the discussion with us of these and other issues affecting Alaska's fiscal and economic condition by following us on the Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets Facebook page and through our posts on Twitter. This week, our top three issues are these. First, we discuss a recent article from Nat Hertz that adds another piece to the Cook Inlet gas puzzle. Second, we look at whether the Permanent Fund Board is still headed off the rails. And third, we explain why we believe that if the legislature isn't going to fix campaign contributions, then Alaskans should through the initiative. And then at the end, we spend a little bit of time discussing what we will be looking for in the upcoming proposed budget, revenue projection, and 10-year plan. And now, let's join Michael. We got some big topics for today. Uh, we got more on the Cook Inlet and then the Permanent Fund Board and then campaign contributions. So I guess we'll get started. What's the what's the latest on the, of course, the Cook Inlet has been a big deal and people down here in South Central are paying attention to it because the the potential for uh, you know, gas restrictions and more are obviously affecting us, but it actually affects people across the state because of the intertie and energy production and everything else. There's more coming up here. So let's uh, let's get started here and see what you have to say. Well, it affects people across the state if uh, if the state decides to put money toward it, as they did last time that we went into this. Yeah, we, didn't, we went into this situation. So that's true. It's something it's something that affects everybody. So the Cook Inlet is sort of like is sort of like the old uh, uh, story about the elephant, right? You you touch this and you think it's one thing, and you touch that part and you think it's another, and you touch this, and and really it's a much bigger issue than uh, than or the elephant's a much bigger thing than any one person is able to see by just touching touching a part of it, and that's that's the case with the Cook Inlet. And Nat Hertz has done a good job, I think, of revealing another part of the elephant uh, in a recent article he did in his Substack page, uh, Northern Journal, which for those who don't follow it, it's it's very, it's useful to follow. Uh, but it's been picked up now by most of the state's newspapers and the, and the, uh, the, the beacon and the public news. So uh, it's available generally anywhere anybody wants to go see it. The headline uh, is... Um, there's lots of gas at Cook Inlet. Here's why some companies aren't are not drilling, and the article goes into depth in a uh, on a 
project that is uh, down by Anchor Point uh, on the Kenai Peninsula or off Anchor Point down by the Kenai Peninsula. The land-based portion of it is down by Anchor Point uh, called the Cosmopolitan Project. And Cosmopolitan is predominantly, right now certainly, uh, an oil project uh, developing an oil reservoir that's offshore uh, the Cook Inlet and, or offshore Anchor Point. And they've done that by directionally, directionally drilling. They're accessing it by directionally drilling down uh, and going in uh, horizontally into that oil pool and then producing it back to the, to the infrastructure that's uh, onshore. But according to Bluecrest, uh, the owner of that project, uh, there is a gas cap that sits on top of the oil uh, formation and a gas cap of some significant size that's not being produced at all. To produce it efficiently, you have to build an offshore rig or an offshore platform and then go down and spread out into, uh, into the gas formation. Gas doesn't really lend itself to the type of horizontal drilling that, uh, that they're using for the oil pool. And, uh, and, and it, it would take a significant investment to, uh, to develop the infrastructure to do that. The article mentions $350 million. That seems a little light to me, but, but that's nonetheless what, uh, what Cosmopolitan, the owners of Cosmopolitan have talked about uh, uh, being the investment required. The, the gas pool or the, yeah, the gas, uh, the gas formation that's a, uh, uh, part of the cosmopolitan project seems to be of some size, significant size. It's been tested. It's been evaluated by engineers. It's been independent engineers. It's been, uh, uh reported on by independent engineers and seems to be uh, a significant size that could, that could help alleviate, if not resolve, uh, the cook inlet, uh, gas crisis for enough for an extended period of time. But it's not being developed. And the reason it's not being developed is because it takes the 350 or, or more million dollars to, uh, to build the infrastructure. And the guy that owns uh, Cosmopolitan, the company that owns Cosmopolitan, Bluecrest, hasn't been able to raise the money to do that. Uh, and, and, and so Nat's article goes into a lot of detail about all of that and, and talks to the utilities about why they don't help uh, raise the money to develop if the utilities are concerned about gas shortages, why they don't help to raise the money to uh, develop a, develop the project and goes into some detail about the oil and gas credits that uh, the cook, that were applicable in the cook inlet back in the early 20 teens and how they helped get it started. But then they, then they were terminated and, and now uh, are no longer available to help, uh, help develop it. There, there's a couple of other things that come out of this story that there that that aren't in the story that I think are important to understand as we're trying to shape the elephant. One of the problems with the Cook Inlet isn't it isn't supply, it's market. Um, we have we have really two purchasers, and there's three if you add Homer, but there's really two big purchasers of gas in the Cook Inlet. One is NSTAR and one is Chugach Electric uh, to run its gas-fired power plants. And, and that's really it. It's not a major market. It's not a major size. Um, to give you some idea of, of, of the, the, the issue with markets back in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, when Cook Inlet was first being developed, uh, they developed it for oil and there was a lot of gas they were finding that was coming up with the oil. And they flared it. 
uh, much like what you've got going on in West Texas with the Permian Basin. They flared it. And then the state imposed a no flare rule, no uh, banned flares. So they so they had all this oil, but they couldn't produce it without producing the gas and the gas and there wasn't a market for the gas. So what they developed at the time was MSTAR came out of that. Agrium, the fertilizer plant that was down on the Kenai came out of that. And the LNG export plant uh, that was down on the Kenai came out of that. They developed a market to 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 absorb the amount of gas that was coming out of the coming out of the project. Well, now we've lost Agrium and we've lost the LNG export uh, facility, uh, frankly, because it wasn't world class size anymore. And so when you develop a resource in the in the Cook Inlet, when you when you look at gas in the Cook Inlet and you find a significant resource like uh, like what the Cosmopolitan Project that Blue Crest has found, the problem with it, a problem with it, is you don't have enough market to make it pay out. I mean, if they developed it and they had all this gas, NSTAR and Shugach wouldn't be able to absorb enough of it uh, to, to, to really pay out the project. So part of the problem that they're in, in finding investors is they don't have enough market. If they go ahead and invest, develop the pool, they don't have enough market to be able to uh, to sell all the gas and, and pay off the make it make it economically uh, attractive to do that. It's too big in the sense that uh, in the sense that uh, that the way the economics work and there really isn't unlike the old days when you had Agrim where you could stick some of the gas in the LNG export facility on Kenai where you could stick some of the gas. We don't have that anymore. So you just got those two markets, and if they're not willing to buy and they can't buy enough to make it economic and they're not willing to pay uh, more per unit to make it economic for the smaller units that you're able to that, that, that they have the smaller demand that they have to make it economic then you can't then you can't attract investors one thing so so we're just sort of sitting there sitting there with this developed resource or with this with this identified resource not developed but this identified resource and sort of in this stalemate between Hey, we've got gas, but we don't have enough market to do it on our own. And you're not willing to pay enough or you're not willing to help with the investment necessary to to develop the resource. So we're just sort of set, standing and sitting in this in this Chinese standoff. One thing this article does do above all is is to help identify that this isn't a supply problem. So when you when when Governor Dunleavy talks about, well, we're going to solve Cook Inlet by by uh, uh, giving up on royalty, by uh, not collecting royalty with respect to additional developments, that'll incentivize additional developments, or George Rauscher's idea of some sort of, you know, reestablishing some sort of credits. Um, those aren't, those are, those are tools you use to develop additional supply. Uh, and, and it looks like, I mean, from Nat's article, it looks like a cosmopolitan is giving us a lot of additional supply. So we're, we're, those tools are really misfit to, to the situation we're, we're facing. Here's the deal. I mean, the deal is the utilities, the utilities are the ones that are the purchasers and they're the ones that need to make the economic decision. Are they willing to pay enough to just to, 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 to blue, to blue crest to cost for the cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan project to be developed? Are they willing to pay enough? Or is it a better deal for them to go out and import LNG? And the article goes into 
several uh, comments by the utilities saying it's a better deal for them to import LNG. The economics are more secure. The supply is more secure. The upfront cash is less uh, to do it. And it's a better deal for them to, to look at, uh, to look at importing LNG. So it's another, I, I would say this is not the, this is not the end story on the cook inlet, but it's another piece of the elephant that, that, that Nat has helped to define or helped to identify that is giving us a better feel for the whole story. I, I would say that it should be um, a, a sub substantial uh, uh, detraction from, if not the end of the supply side tools that Dunleavy's talked about, about uh, 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 giving up on royalty or that Rauscher has talked about, about additional credits. We have a supply identified. Nat's done a good job in this article to talk about a supply that's been identified. Now it's a question of whether we can afford in the sense of, of paying enough to incentivize investors to make the investment necessary to, to, to produce the additional supply. It's a question now whether we can afford to pay enough the economics work to develop that additional supply or not. We should, but we shouldn't be going out there now and saying, oh, we need to give we need to throw a bunch of additional supply tools out there. Uh, to try to develop additional supply. We ought to be focusing on the supply that somebody's identified and figuring out whether that's going to be enough to, whether whether we can make the economics work to bring that to uh, bring that to market. So to summate, uh, the governor and others are treating it like it's a, a supply problem. And really the problem is, is that it's a local demand and market problem uh, in the long run, is that you can't treat it like it's a, a supply problem because there's plenty of supply You've just got to make the market, the dollars work out. And that's what's the, that's what, and that's why they're looking at importing because that is the cheapest, most reliable option in the future. Right. I will say this. So it's a supply problem, maybe for Hillcorp. It's a supply problem that, you know, Hillcorp doesn't have an identified supply they could develop to bring on their, at least they're saying that they could bring on to meet the market. It's over here in another corporation called Bluecrest. And so Hillcorp would say, ooh, I need, I need, you know, supply help to incentivize me to go out and addition and, and develop additional supply. But looking at the overall, which I think is what Nat's done a very good job helping us do, looking at the overall, it isn't an overall supply problem. It's a it's a much different problem than what Hillcorp and the administration have made out to this point. Donna asks, could Hillcorp finance the development? I mean, since they're the ones that are looking for supply, could they finance the development? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Nat addresses that in the article. He talked to both Hillcorp and he talked to talked to uh, Bluecrest about it. And um, and and the response he got from Bluecrest was, "We haven't been able to agree on terms." So you got two corporations, each of which are trying to maximize their own their their own uh, uh, profit. Um, uh, who are who are you know. Who would have to do a deal in order to accomplish that? Hillcorp sitting there going, "We got money. <laughs> you got the gas, but we got the money. You need money, so you ought to give us a lot." Uh, ben, or Bluecrest is sitting there going, "We got the gas. You, we don't have the money, but we got the gas. You ought to give us a lot." So you have that. You have that dynamic going on. It. I mean, that would be that would be a solution. Hillcorp's got existing contracts they could extend, um, but. Uh, as, as Nat says, they haven't been able to come to terms. 
So you think the ultimate, and I mean, this is, again, as a, as a neophyte, as a layman, this is what I see on the outside. I think this is all going to basically come down to, it, we're going to be importing gas because they can't figure it out and there's not enough market to demand it. So ultimately we're going to be, you know, in a few years, we'll be just pulling gas in on the, from the West coast somewhere and that'll be it. That's where it's trending, Michael. Um, and, 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 you know, that's what the market is saying. The market is saying there's not enough demand. There's not enough price that, that, that people are willing to pay here for gas to finance, to, to support the financing and the development of the, of the blue crest, uh, uh, option. I mean, basically, you know, some people try to put numbers to it and say, look, you know, imported LNG is expensive. It's maybe $12, uh, an MMBTU, but Hey, to finance, uh, Given the given the market we have to finance Hill uh, to finance the the, uh, the Cosmopolitan project, it'd take fifteen dollars or twenty dollars uh, in MMBTU by the time all of the costs are rolled in. So we're not. We, I mean, the economics say that the best price, the best the best course of action is the um, is the uh, uh, is is to is to import the LNG. As I say, we Alaska faced this issue before. Uh, when we when we shut down uh, uh, flaring, and the result was uh, Unical, I think, built the fertilizer plant, uh, Con or Marathon at the time built the LNG plant. The two big producers that were out in the Cook Inlet at the time, they each built a plant uh, to to create demand for the uh, supply that was out there. And really, at the time, the economics were we want to get more oil. We got to get rid of this gas, so let's go build a plant. Let's go build a, a LNG export facility to create the demand to absorb the gas, so we can produce the oil. Um, we, we don't we don't quite have that dynamic right now, um, and certainly Cosmopolitan doesn't have the ability to go build um, uh, a fertilizer plant or uh, or a LNG export facility to uh, uh, to absorb the excess supply. So um, that's that's where we are. Do you think that, uh, I mean, if, you know, all things being equal and uh, Dukes waves his magic wand and says, here's a major export facility, if they rebuilt it and made it a major export with the volume to be able to do it, is there enough volume in the Cook Inlet to export it if there was? It's just it's just kind of one of those medium fields or what? It's kind of one of those medium fields. It's kind of one of those. It's one of those things where there'd be excess supply for a while. I mean, that's 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 what happened to Kenai, right? That's what happened to the Kenai export facility. There was export supply for a while that kept it running. And that that was in a period when there weren't a whole lot of world-class, world-scale export supply facilities. So Kenai was the first export facility from the U.S. Um, it had found a market in Japan, a relatively small market in Japan. So you had this relatively small excess that built an export facility and then it went over there. Um, that's not the world we live in now. The world we live in now is, is much different. Yeah, bigger scale, lot, lot more, lot higher scale, lot more gas required for that. Looks like, uh, I mean, it's kind of sad to say, but it looks like Alaska will be importing LNG, even though we're sitting on trillions of cubic feet of it, because the economics just that's that's the market. You're slaves to the market at that point. That's the that's the bottom line. And, and the uh, last thing we want is for the state to intervene and try to upset them and try to subsidize the market. Exactly, exactly. Don't get involved. All right, we're back. Continuing now with Brad Keithley, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets, the weekly top three. Or we get a chance to talk about three big issues. We just finished talking about uh, 
uh, Cook Inlet Gas. And now we're looking at something we've covered pretty extensively over the last few weeks, and that are the actions of the Permanent Fund Corporation board. Because uh, there seems to be some hankiness, some some weirdness going on between the Permanent Fund Corporation board and certain members of the legislature. Uh, we've talked about kind of the shell game uh, accounting and economics that they're putting in some of the reports and the moves that they're trying to do to uh, to change the way the Permanent Fund Corporation does stuff. And now, of course, they've been pushing to uh, try and consolidate the earnings reserve and the corpus of the fund. Uh, there's uh, th there's some interesting things going on here. And now it looks like they might be getting ready for more. Brad? Yeah, this is sort of part 20 of the, of the Permanent Fund board story. Tim Bradner ha has a, an opinion piece uh, in, the, in the ADN uh, from last weekend, I think it was, uh, the title is Permanent Fund Trustees Should Pump the Brakes on Risky Growth Plans. And he talks about an issue that I thought had sort of gotten settled in the October meeting when uh, when everybody, uh, uh, when, when the Permanent Fund Board assessed or, or discussed uh, uh, increasing the risk profile of the, of the Permanent Fund in order to spice up earnings in order to try to get to this $100 billion uh, uh, size of the permanent fund board that at least Ellie Rubenstein wants to be able to take credit for. Um, but it, but it turns out, according to Tim's article, at least it turns out that there's one other piece of, of the permanent fund board's plan for growth, uh, that hasn't been resolved yet in the October meeting. Most of the focus was on increasing the risk profile, increasing the risk of the projects the Permanent Fund Board was taking on um, in an effort to increase the return, you get higher returns and, and get to $100 billion uh, uh, faster. Take the returns from 6% to 9%, for example, by increasing the, the riskiness of the projects that, uh, that you're investing in. Now, of course, <laughs> that if you increase the risk, I mean, there are more risky projects. So you might get 9%, you might get zero if they bust. That's why you get 9% uh, if they hit because, because you're taking on increased risk. And the October board meeting, I, the articles around the October meeting board meeting indicated that the permanent fund backed off that sort of plan, that the advisory board suggested strongly against that uh, as, a, as a growth plan for a sovereign wealth fund. Um, and uh, and suggested that that was now was not the time, if ever there was a time. Now certainly wasn't the time to be engaged in that activity. There was a piece of of, how, of what the permanent fund board was looking at uh, that also spiked, that also could be used to spike uh, uh, returns, and that is borrowing a bunch of money at 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 loan rates that, you know, 5% loan rates or 6% loan rates or whatever they can borrow the money at, and then investing it and uh, getting higher returns, investing it as equity and getting higher returns off of, off of that investment, sort of an arbitrage between uh, uh, debt costs and, and equity returns. And I thought that had been killed off in the October meeting uh, also. But uh, according to Tim's article, it hasn't. Um, here's the paragraph. This isn't over, however. Part two is coming in the trustees' December meeting 
And for many, it sounds even more dangerous. It is to borrow from the fund to buy equities. Borrowing $4 billion is one figure mentioned. Think about this. Would you take a second mortgage on your home to play the stock market? And that's that's essentially, you know, trying to encapsulate it. That's essentially what uh, what the permanent fund board would be doing. It's something that hedge funds do. I mean, hedge funds go out and borrow a lot of money to invest in the equities or historically have done that, gone out and borrowed a lot of money and gone out to and then invested it in equity plays or in buying companies or whatever to get higher, to, to enjoy those higher returns off the invested money. They pay back the borrowing and then they get the margin between the cost of the borrowing and the and the return they get. But even but even there's articles in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere over the past few months that, that hedge funds are are pulling back from that as debt costs have gone higher. I mean, it's great if your debt cost is two percent and the equity return you, you think you're going to get is five, six, seven, eight, nine. I mean, that's 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 a pretty good deal. But if your debt cost and keep in mind that that the risk riskless risk free rate of ret- or risk free debt cost right now, the, the Treasury market is above 4%, approaching 5%, it's it's not as good if your debt cost is 5% and the re- equity returns you're looking at are 6 or 7 or 8 with a risk factor. I mean, and after you take right. the risk factor into account. This is the sort of strategy back in, what was it, the 1980s that got all of the um, uh, pension plans, the, the state and city pension plans in trouble. It's what bankrupted Detroit. They went out to spike the, the pension returns, so they didn't so they didn't have to set so much money aside for pensions. They they decided to spike the returns on the money that they had, and to spike those returns, they went out and borrowed a lot of money and invested in very risky equities to try to to try to you know increase the, the returns and increase the size of their of their pension plans. Problem was the risks blew up, uh, the investments didn't turn out, and they had all these debt costs, all these all these. Uh, uh, debt payments do uh and they went bankrupt i mean it was it 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 it, it was a it was a very sad situation and and that's sort of the same sort of concern i think that tim's expressing in his article and that i have uh, with these sorts of projects to go out and borrow a bunch of money to invest in, in projects one other thing the the permanent fund board does this on a project basis so for example we know the permanent fund board owns Tyson's Corner in Virginia, right? Outside DC. And that project has borrowed money secured by the assets of Tyson's Corner uh, to pay for a portion of, of, of the purchase. That the, the permanent fund hasn't taken, hasn't paid for all of Tyson's Corner by through equity. They've paid a portion of it in equity and a portion of it in debt. So they do this on a project basis where it is secured by the assets of the project that they're that they're engaged in. Right. This what they're talking about now is is just general debt, uh, not doing it on a project basis, but just going out and pledging the permanent fund corpus <laughs> as uh, as as the asset as the basis for borrowing just a bunch of money and and trying to invest it generally. Much much different uh, 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 situation than when they do it on a project basis like Tyson's Corner. Anyway, Tim's raising the concern. I think it's a very valid concern. Well, because, I mean, it reeks of desperation. That's the thing. And we should not be making these kind of decisions in a desperation mode. That's what it keeps, you know, the more that they they make these things and they're like, oh, they're betting on the if come. 
you know, it's like best case scenario, we'll get an 8% return on nearly a 5% cost in the, in the borrowing and everything else. We might get it. But what if it's 1%? Then you're just basically washing money, I mean, back and forth, and you're not really doing anything. I mean, I think Tim makes the comment about what is this, what is this desperation to hit $100 million? Um, you know, what, what is the, what's the impetus behind this? And I think we all know what the impetus behind this is. <laughs> it's Ellie's it's ego. <laughs> yeah. But it is, you know, it's, um, it's, it's insane that we would like to take risks with, you know, what is essentially the main money well for the state in the future. I mean, that's just not something that you play around with, uh, you know, uh, you know, ad, ad, you know, ad hoc, you don't just go out there and say, well, we'll just borrow a bunch of money to do it, especially when it is the main corpus of the fund that you're talking about. Yeah. I think Tim, Tim has the same attitude that, that we, that you and I have discussed on the show before, which is look, let's, you know, steady and slow wins the race. Let's just keep building it uh, as we build it carefully uh, in a, in a very risk averse uh, uh, way. Um, step out and make investments where they, where they make sense, but don't, you know, don't go for the home run. Don't swing for the fences. Don't swing for the grand slam. Be, be, be satisfied with singles and doubles and the occasional, you know, the occasional home run when it comes like, like Juno pharmaceuticals was for the permanent fund, but, but be, be satisfied with, with singles and doubles. And, um, and I think, I think that's the right attitude with respect to our permanent fund. You know, if I were, if I were running a hedge fund, I might, you know, and I, and I, you know, and I wanted to, you know, gin up returns, I might feel differently about it, but this isn't a hedge fund. This isn't uh, a wall street journal, you know, greed is good fund. This is, this is sort of a, a, a right. baseline base, base, uh, baseline, uh, uh, fund for, for Alaska. Right. So this isn't mad money. This is bread and butter money. This is the money that pays the bills. This is not mad money that you go to Vegas with and blow because you saved it up. This is your, this is the money that's paying the mortgage kind of thing yep. to put it in more of a rig. And then I had to chuckle because even, uh, because Bradner goes on to say, uh, when they started talking about all these ideas, he says, reporters jumped onto it, leading some trustees to grumble about the press digging into their business. Of course, that's what the press are supposed to do. I mean, surprise i mean you're a public corporation that's supposed to be transparent it's supposed of course they're supposed to dig into this i mean they 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 complain because what they want it to all happen in the dead of night because they're the experts and and we shouldn't have any input on it at all i mean but they aren't the experts that, that's what we that's what we talked about on the show before that the permanent fund board i mean i i still think the permanent fund board needs to be restructured to turn it into experts but but they aren't experts. They're 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 people with egos and with gubernatorial ambitions that want to say you know they were there when the permanent fund board or when the permanent fund grew exponentially or whatever they want to say. They aren't experts. They're they're they're, they're being driven by other factors. That's what we yeah. need. We need experts. And then and then maybe we wouldn't need as much press scrutiny. But but right. The only thing I could see is some guy going to Vegas with his mortgage money. It's the same, just guaranteeing that he's going to, he's going to hit it big and come back and win big. That's what he's doing. It's not the money that he saved up over the year to, to splurge. It's his, it's his kid's college fund, or it's the mortgage money that he has in his pocket. And he just knows he's going to get, you know, he's going to get it. And uh, that's, that's too much of a gamble 
for for my blood for sure again that's just the image that plays into my mind every time is that they're walking out there with a wad full of cash that should be going to the kids dentures or you know dentist pay bills or whatever just the day-to-day things that we need that's what they're playing with they're playing with the day-to-day money um that the state needs to operate um and if they if they flubbed this up and they go out there and they lose a bunch of money Every time they do that, that hits us harder. And uh, this this rush to get to this $100 million mark is just, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Well, they're, they're playing with your permanent fund dividend money, too. I mean, they're saying, they're saying that they know better how to invest that than you do. And so here, let us, let us take a risk with that money. Uh, if we lose it, eh, too bad. You know, we're all still rich. We all still get the board the members. Yeah, they're all still rich. Uh, Brian says it. Uh, Brian, Brian says it best. But but they know better, Brad. They're so much smarter than the rest of us, kind of thing. You know. But as you pointed out, these aren't even the investor experts. These are just a, a, a governor's type board that are seeing into this, and they're coming up with all these great fairy tale ideas that are not. I mean, they got the woe back. From people like uh, uh, George Zinn and stuff like that, who was one of the advisors, the the treasurer of Microsoft, who said, whoa, that's not a good idea. And they're still like, oh, no, but we know better than you, George Zinn, to, to do that. I mean, that just it blows my mind. Yeah, it's um, well, it's just ego driven. I mean, it's Ellie wants to be part of the hundred billion dollar club. I mean, she said that much and said as much in, in Saudi Arabia or wherever she made she made those remarks. And and Jason and, and Adam want to be governor. and. It's just, I, it, it, I mean, it's being, the board is being driven by factors other than, hey, let's just get a good return for Alaskans. Let them enjoy part of it as permanent fund dividends. Let them enjoy part of it as, as tax avoidance. Use the, use a portion of it to, you know, to, to substitute for taxes and, 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 and keep taxes low in Alaska. Let's, let's just, as opposed to, as opposed to that. It's it's oh let's go for broke let's let's see if we can't hit the big time and you know make me part of the hundred billion dollar club and and make right you know, give, well give what happens to a, a spur in their governor in the governor what happens if they kill the golden goose I mean <laughs> that's the thing right I mean the the danger is now four billion out of a seventy five billion dollar fund doesn't sound like much but you know there are knock on effects and something like that that could be very detrimental in the long run yeah it's. I mean, four billion becomes six billion becomes ten billion becomes. Uh, it's just um, you start down that road. I mean, that was the problem. That was the problem to me. The problem with the in-state investment program that that they thought was a brilliant idea at one point in time. We're going to go to invest in in these in-state companies, in in these Alaska companies, and help and help grow Alaska. Well, it turns out the returns weren't as good as as uh, as we could have gotten elsewhere. So we had lost opportunity costs. We took money that we could have been investing. Uh, out there in the in the broad market, uh, earning returns on it, and we invested in these companies that didn't produce as good a return. You just start sinking. You just start falling farther and farther and farther behind. Um, in the case of the in the case of Detroit, I mean, they got so out of so out of hand that uh, that they bet the entire farm on it. Yes, you could maybe you can say, okay, well, Alaska is better because we didn't bet the entire farm. But why why do we want to why do we want to lower Risk lowering, pushing ourselves behind, getting farther behind when uh, when we can just stay the course, not produce the world's greatest returns. You know, somebody's lucky enough to to have a great return over here. We didn't get that. Oh, my gosh. You know, we got to go chase it somewhere else because we got to be in that club. We just need to stay the course. 
Yeah, in these situations, slow and steady wins the race. We know that. I mean, statistically, we know that. I mean, you know, anybody who's studied any of this stuff doesn't even have to be somebody who who plays the the stocks or anything understands that in the long run, if you are conservative, your money will still double and double and double over the course of decades. It's not sexy. It's not splashy, but it gets the job done. And that's kind of where we've been. And, and all of a sudden, somebody wants to, whoa. Somebody wants to to pull the plug and and uh, and go for broke, and that's that's not something that I would want to have hanging on my uh, hanging on my desk. No, and I and I thought, I mean, the, the the point of Tim's article, I thought we were sort of past this after the October meeting. I mean, James Brooks had an article that says, you know, the likelihood of of doing this is like zero now after the October meeting, but now. What Tim is suggesting is we got part two coming up. Oh, well, you don't like you don't like us changing chasing big returns. Well, how about if we just go debt financed uh, for some yeah. for some of our returns? I, OK, well, let's knock that one down, too. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. And again, the lamentation that all of a sudden that reporters are bullying <laughs> into their business, that just, you know, finally, I guess, is what I would say to that. Finally, somebody's actually digging into something uh, in this state from the journalism side of the world instead of just reporting what the press release says. I think that that's a good thing. Uh, I think we need more of that. Uh, let's let's take an example from that. And again, the powers that be behind this inside the Senate as well, pushing for some of this. You guys, that's just this is all I could say to that. And Brian also said uh, what I and I my thing is so slow. Every time I click it, it's not showing the comment. Uh, he says, what I find interesting is the hue and cry from the uh, shift from pensions to 401k crowd that says, but the stock markets are so risky. But when it's public monies, the same people are all in. This is, again, talking about the permanent fund folks wanting to borrow the money. That's the that's the argument, right? We don't want the tier four because that's defined contributions. And that's just way too risky. We want guaranteed returns. Except, of course, if we're using your money, in which case we can play it all we want. You know, we, we want to play it all we want. That's a great observation. That's a great observation. Yeah. Welcome back. We are talking with Brad Keithley, Alaskans for Sustainable. We could stay on this topic. But number two, we could have stayed on that for three segments, I think, at this point. Uh, but we're going to move on. Now we're talking about campaign contributions. Now, the big thing about this, of course, is the court system uh, declared that the limits on uh, campaign contributions were unconstitutional at one point, which just kind of threw it back at the legislature, which has made them kind of limitless at this point. Um, and so the question is, what do we need? Is the legislature going to do anything? I mean, these are the guys that are benefiting from all these, un, you know, un, uncapped uh, contributions. So it doesn't look like they're probably going to take this up. So there's a new uh, initiative going out. Brad, let's talk about it. So this article or this 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 segment was spurred by an article in the uh, the Peninsula Clarion uh, titled League of Women Voters of Alaska. Join us in calling for campaign finance limits. And you're exactly right. Several years ago, the Ninth Circuit uh, found that that Alaska's then existing campaign limits uh, campaign finance limits, campaign contribution limits, uh, were unconstitutional because they were too low, not because they existed, not because we had campaign contribution limits. You find those in, in the vast majority of the states, you find those nationally, not because we had campaign contribution limits, but because they were too low because they hadn't, been, they, they hadn't kept up with inflation or they hadn't grown as, as, as various other things 
had grown, and so they were unreasonably low. They were they were they were uh, limited uh, free speech. The Ninth Circuit found because they were unreasonably low. Senate or essentially Senate back to the legislature and said, "Look, you know, you can have campaign contribution limits. They just need to be more reasonable. They need to keep up with inflation, and they need to they need to grow as other as other uh, uh, things grow." And the legislature went, "Us." You want us to limit campaign contributions? And so that that ball that got thrown back from the Ninth Circuit to the legislature just sort of, sort of went flying by um, and uh, and wasn't caught by the legislature, and the legislature hasn't acted on it. So the League of Women Voters and others are pushing an initiative uh, for the 2024 election cycle uh, to reenact uh, campaign contribution limits um, uh, and uh, are... Uh, have a petition out there for people to sign, uh, and are and are pushing forward and are pushing forward on it to up to update, not to really change the old system that we had, but just to update the amounts uh, uh, of the campaign contribution limits to uh, to to what five hundred dollars would be if it had been uh, uh, escalated by uh, inflation over time. Right. Um, and I think I think campaign contribution limits, I think those campaign contribution limits are a very good thing. Let me say quickly, you can find, you can go to the League of Women Butters, you can find links that that will take to, uh, uh, take you to the petition itself. It's not a, unlike ranked choice voting, it's not a 25-page uh, 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 petition or not a 25-page uh, set of statutes. It's three pages. It's just changing the existing statutes on the books. Uh, uh, to update to update the amounts largely, so it's not we're we're not we're not dealing with something like ranked choice voting where we're just going to overthrow the existing system. It is it's just an update uh, to what we had in place before, and I think it's I think it's a good thing. Sometimes political scientists talk about there being two primaries: the money primary and then the votes primary, and 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 you have to and candidates have to win both primaries. You have to win the money primary to get enough to, to run, to finance a good run, and then you have to get the votes uh, to, to, to get elected. And the Republican National Committee is using that with respect to with respect to the presidential candidates. Each of these debates is being narrowed by requiring that you have so many donors. One of the factors is so many donors in so many states that you're proving you have a base of support in terms, in terms of money, and I think I think that's a I think that's a good thing. Not only it, it democratizes, if you will, uh, uh, the campaigns even more. You have to prove you have to go out and get small donors. You have to prove you can you have enough people supporting you, willing to put their money behind you, to be able to uh, to be able to to run a race, to be able to prove that you're electable, to be able to prove that that you've got a broad base of support. Uh, as you go into uh, as you go into the election cycle, eliminating the campaign contribution limits changes that dynamic. You can find one or two people that can finance your entire campaign and uh, and and keep you going, uh, even if you can't get a broad base of support and and can knock people out, other people out who can't raise the same amount of money. I, I think back to the 2018 race. Uh, that that Charlie Huggins was in, Senator, then state senator, Senate president, former state pre Senate president at the time, Charlie Huggins was in, and then Dunleavy was in. Dunleavy had his brother come in with a bunch of money. Charlie, you know, was trying to raise money. Charlie didn't have personal wealth or didn't have 
uh, uh, relations that had wealth was trying to raise a broad-based amount of money, and and Dunleavy essentially just knocked him out by having by having a ton of money. Dunleavy never proved, really, frankly, that he had that broad base of support by by a, a ton of donors. He just you know had that had that money that uh, that that took Charlie out. So I think it's I think it's a good thing to have to demonstrate that you can raise money from a broad base of contributors, inc- including a bunch of small contributors. Uh, to to you know to finance your your candidacy and to run, we don't have that in Alaska right now. Right now, without campaign contribution limits, big money can come in and and push candidates, finance candidates, knock other candidates out who can't who can't match uh, match the dollars coming in from one or two people, can't match the dollars coming in and can run a race and just you know take everybody out. We have enough problems with big money in this state. We have enough problems with. Uh, with uh, uh, the top 20%, the corporations and, and all that sort of thing. We need to get back to a, a, an election cycle, an election platform that has broad base, requires a broad base of financial support to really to really demonstrate uh, uh, your candidacy and to really finance your candidacy, candidacy going forward. So I think the campaign contribution limits are a very good thing. Uh, I think I've been through the uh, the proposed statute itself, uh, and I think it's fine. It doesn't have all those bells and whistles that that we saw from uh, ranked choice voting, uh, and I think it's a a good thing to get on board with and uh, and to support. The numbers seem to match out. I mean, the numbers, the new numbers, uh, seem to be uh, equitable. Then and again, would show the broad basis support. Yep, yep, yep. The numbers are. I mean, it's just five hundred dollars updated. So, for example. Instead of, of uh, it used to be $500 per election cycle, 500 per year, excuse me, 500 per year, uh, uh, the cap on individual contributions. It's now $2,000 per election cycle and election cycles are two years. So right. essentially $1,000 a year uh, uh, is, what, uh, is what they're updating it to. And, and they and put I, an adjuster in, they put an adjuster in for inflation as well. Every ten years, the the APOC would adjust the would look at the look at the number and adjust it for inflation. That's to avoid getting back into the same problem that the right, uh, which is the problem we had before because there was no adjuster, so it was locked into non-inflation. It it didn't didn't adjust for inflation over the years. Yeah, the legislature could have adjusted it for inflation, but didn't because once they opened it up, nobody knew where it was going to go. So the Ninth Circuit knocked it out. Now the to avoid that problem of just becoming stale again, they've got the adjustment mechanism. But of course, post-ranked choice voting, we've seen a lot of outside money start to come in because they realize Alaska is a cheap date. And so they want to, if they want to excise change, that's why we've seen school board, I mean, school board races have $100,000 expended, not just at the candidate level, but at the independent expenditure level and everything else. It's it's become madness. And until we fix this, it's it's... I mean, I guess the dark money and the outside money for independent expenditures is probably still going to continue, but at least we wouldn't have, you know, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars dropping directly into a campaign's uh, pocket uh, as far as that goes. Uh, less than a minute here, Brent. Right. The outside expenditure, the independent expenditures would continue because that's that's a Citizens United uh, a U.S. Supreme Court determination. Uh, can't deal with that at the state level, but we can deal with the with the with the limits on contributions that go to the candidates themselves no 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 says brian ranked choice voting fixed all that they said so 
they they said that they were fixing all that dark money. It was it was you know wasn't gonna happen. Wasn't gonna go on. Wasn't gonna happen. All right, Brad. Uh, coming down to it, what are you looking at for next week? Anything you is on the horizon? Give me a quick hit here. Well, we're getting we're getting closer to uh, uh, December fifteenth, which is when the the governor's budget and the new revenue uh, 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 forecast uh, drops. <laughs> we're going into a period of low prices right at the time that that they use as a base for the revenue forecast. So I'm beginning to turn my attention to what I think the revenue forecast should look like, what the ten-year plan should look, the governor's ten-year plan should look like, uh, uh, and uh, use that as a base then when, when we see the actuals uh, to evaluate it's, what the actuals look like. What are your What are you thinking, Brad? I mean, the, obviously, I mean the the prices for oil have cratered um, and come way down, and there's a lot of speculation. But what What do you think is going to come out of that? Just quickly here. Well, an honest look at the state situation would see huge gaps and growing gaps because of because of, of dropping oil prices and dropping revenue producing barrels. I know production's going up, but they're not revenue producing barrels. Dropping revenue uh, uh, producing barrels uh, toward the back end of the of the ten year period. And, and, and spending, you know, if you look at legislative finances, projections, spending going up and up and up and up, uh, up like that. So huge gaps out there, huge gaps, even in FY, uh, what will we be de- dealing with? FY 25? F- 25, yeah. FY 25. Uh, huge gaps, even in FY 25, and certainly uh, growing, growing beyond that. That's what an honest assessment does. We look at that every Friday. We do a Friday chart that looks at, you know, where the based upon current futures markets, what the budget's looking like. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so that's what an honest assessment would be. Sort of the sort of the interesting part of looking at, at any given year's budget is how the governor's trying to cover that up. <laughs> Some years he says, oh, we're going to drop spending. You know, we're going to we're going to reduce spending to, to sort of narrow the gap. Other years it's it's uh, uh, POMB 50-50 to increase some of the, uh, divert some of the PFDs over to to uh, to spending. Last year, it was the 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 concert, the climate change credits, whatever the heck the, the those those credits were. That was going to grow to a billion dollars, you know, in, in a very short amount of time. So some of it's humorous. What, what you know, what fantasy is he going to come up with next year? Um, but but underlying it, I'll be looking for is there anything in there that makes sort of the base case of of continually increased spending and continually reduced uh, traditional revenues. Is there anything in there that makes, makes my preconception about that wrong? Have I missed something? That's sort of the, that's sort of the first place, first thing I go to. And then I try to, then I start trying to understand what, what the, what the governor's come up with. All right, Brad. Well, Hey, we got to flee here, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on board as always. Great to talk with you. Thanks for coming on board and joining us. Michael, as always, thanks for having me. We'll see you next week. Well, that's a wrap for another week's edition of the weekly top three from Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. Thank you again for joining us. Remember that you can find past episodes on our YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Substack pages. And keep track of us during the week on Facebook and Twitter. This has been Brad Keithley, Managing Director of Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. We look forward to you joining us again next week on the weekly top three.